0: Good morning. Happy Monday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. The sun is up. It is a -A beautiful day. It is Monday. Um, I'm talking with Eric Cressy tonight. This is exciting. I haven't talked to Eric in a long time, at least not directly. We've emailed and such. Um, So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I got a pretty good, good question. That came through uh, askbillharmon at gmail.com, and then I had literally the exact same question come through on IFASTU over the weekend, so I thought I gotta answer this one because obviously people have a curiosity. Um, And it's also one of my favorite topics to talk about because it makes people really uncomfortable because it kind of bucks the status quo a little bit. But I think that, that once I get through with the explanation, you'll understand why I have an opinion of such, and then hopefully it will be useful for you as far as your thought process and make your life just a little bit simpler. Um, so the question that came through asked Bill Hartman uh, at Gmail is from Alex. And Alex says, I watched your upload of the 6 a.m. Uh, coaches conference call uh, from this morning. And it was the first time I personally heard you discuss in depth the concept of there's no central plane with regards to the example. Uh, we were talking about calcaneus and talus and, and tibial relationships and how they cancel out rotations to produce this, this forward apparently imaginary sagittal motion. Um, I'm, sure as, or I'm unsure as to whether you went into more depth with the call itself, but I'd be incredibly interested in whether you could address this fully in a Q&A aha, today and how it applies to perceived motion in both the sagittal and the frontal planes. Um, Alex, thank you for the question. Thank you for this opportunity to, to explain this. Um, typically, the way I would do this would be to whiteboard it. Um, so I don't have the whiteboard in the home office as, as I do today. Um, so I'm going to use a visual aid. I made this just for you. Um, not very skilled in the, in that manner, but it'll work. Um, I also brought in the skeleton to give you a, a nice visual representation. Um, first thing I want to talk about is is a little bit of geometry. So the Cartesian plane concept of the X, Y, and Z axis still applies. Um, we, we visually, um, we perceive this three-dimensional, actually four-dimensional, I like to I like throw space time in there, um, but this three-dimensional world of the X, Y, and Z axis. And so, so that's what we see. And so when we ta- started talking about anatomy, they decided that, okay, we move in three planes, therefore there must be three planes. And I would offer that visually we see the representation in space this three planes but we don't actually produce movement in three planes what we do is we cancel out rotations to create direction and so let's talk about that so if we look at things from a from a geometric standpoint we have this point in space And if I put enough points together, I can make a line. And if I have enough lines together, I can make a plane. And if I put enough planes together, I can make a shape. And so this shape that we're going to worry about is this cylinder. So this is a a stack of transverse planes, if you will. And so if I put this over the skeleton, this is what our representation looks like. And so I have a three-dimensional representation now of, of the transverse plane. And what you'll notice is that if I draw a line across any any two points in this uh, this cylinder that crosses through the midline of the cylinder, um, I can make a plane in any direction. And so what I want you to recognize is that if I'm looking down the cylinder, the sagittal plane and the frontal planes actually fall within this transverse plane. And so there's nothing unique or special about the sagittal planes. They're just part of of this this three-dimensional transverse plane representation. And so if I go three degrees off the sagittal plane, what do we call that plane? It doesn't get a special name because it it shouldn't be special. Neither should sagittal nor frontal. Um, It's just a three-dimensional representation to help us have a conversation and nothing more. But it's not how we produce movement. We produce movement in rotations. So let me give you a for instance. So um, when you were developing in in your mother's belly and you were a flat plate. Um, of, the, of the embryo, and this embryo folds itself over like a burrito, thinking about Thursday chips and salsa already, so your burrito, so that burrito is actually a tube just like my cylinder, which means that you are all transverse plane. Every joint in your body moves on a helically oriented direction, so it's all at, so they move in helical movements, which are rotational movements. All the relative motions that we talk about between body segments are rotations that cancel each other out to produce motion in any direction, not just straight ahead, not just sideways. So again, we can eliminate those as being special planes. There's nothing special about them. Every movement is a cancellation of rotations. Your infrasternal angle is representative of the helical angles of your axial skeleton. Therefore, it tells us what you're good at. How great are you going to be at rotation is going to be determined by your infrasternal angle. When we talk about high force production, like bench presses and squats and deadlifts, and especially these, with, with these tremendous weights, what you have are, are human beings that are incredibly capable of canceling out rotations and directing it in one direction, which allows them to lift these, these gigantic heavy weights. So if we want to talk about sagittal and frontal planes, I'm okay with that. I really am. When we talk about directions and points in space and things, but when we talk about how we produce movement, we, we only do things in rotations, and if we can start to see that, our problem solving becomes spectacularly easy relative to trying to think in, in all of these multiple directions that just create confusion. So, again, I, I encourage you to, to think this through a little bit. I know it's confusing because I just took away two things that have been ingrained in your brain as far as like how we do move. Um, There's nothing special about those planes. They don't really exist. They are a resultant of the cancellation of rotation. So again, hopefully this is helpful. Alex, if you have any further clarification questions on this one, please ask away at at billharmon.gmail.com. If you're angry with me, please send your hate mail directly to me. You can DM me on Instagram or or throw this up and be angry on YouTube if you like. I'm totally cool with that because I know it's uncomfortable to think this way. But if we're going to solve problems and if we're going to get better, we got to start looking at things differently. So think differently. Have a great Monday. I hope you all have a fabulous week to get it rolling. And I'll see you tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand. And oh, it is perfect. Got my Irish on today. Uh-oh. Little shout out to my buddy Robbie Bort, who got it for me, my, my Irish brother. Um, hi Robbie, hope you're doing well. Uh, so Tuesday, we got I got an interesting question, something that I just actually had no uh, awareness of at all because I don't pay any attention to some of this stuff. So I had to go look look this up, and this question actually comes from Rachel. Um, and Rachel had a question in regarding knees, and so she said, recently been seeing more people popping up in the industry, highly recommending huge amounts of end range knee flexion and ankle dorsiflexion to bulletproof knees. Is there any validity to this? If so or if not, could you provide a perspective of these movement strategies? And then she wants to know how does it relate to some of the, the gradients that we talk about and some of the propulsion elements. Um, so let's, let's unpack this a little bit and, and run it through a little bit of filtering. So so we always have to look at some of these things um, through a number of filters, uh, starting with, okay, who is presenting this information? Is is this person considered an expert in a field where they have a vast amount of experience underneath the, their, their belt, where they have multiple barriers, they've worked with a broad scope of people? Or... Is this an individual that is providing his own experience? So I talk about experience a lot because I think it's very, very valuable. But but we always have to understand that it's not just one individual's experience that we can utilize to determine whether something is useful or effective because of the way that the outliers impact things. So if I have an extreme capability that I'm able to demonstrate because of my physical structure or some some genetic capability, um, it's fascinating to look at. It's interesting. Um, It actually may be useful in guiding us in in a direction, but but because it is based on the individual himself and, and their unique capabilities, we cannot use that as a standard of anything. Like I said, it might provide us with some information that might be useful at some point in time, but we can't rely on it um as as an absolute. Everything that we talk about from a health perspective, so we're talking about like healthy knees, healthy ankles, etc. Th- th- this is all multifactorial. There are so many potential influences. And a lot of times these things are presented as this is the one thing that you need and it is rarely one thing uh, because we have this massive interaction. I'm I'm always uh, talking about like even during treatment, I really don't know why people get better. But what I what I am capable of doing is narrowing probabilities um, to to determine what might be the best intervention under these circumstances for this individual in this context. So we have to narrow these things things down in in, in that way. Um, but again, we can't say that oh it's this one thing that's that's going to make this massive amount of difference. It is. Possible that it is. It's just really, really rare. So again, this is one of those filters that we have to run things through. Um, when you're looking at some of these extremes, let, let me. So I actually looked some of this stuff up, and I, and I actually looked at it. Um, so I so I would have, be able to speak um, minimally intelligently um, about this. Um, if you look at the way some of these people are accessing these end ranges of motion. Um, This is about as idiosyncratic as it gets. So I was looking at one gentleman who has this extreme amount of of knee flexion. Um, He has a very, very deep squat, but the way that he accesses his deep squat under most circumstances would be considered a compensatory strategy. But if you look at the way that he does it, he also has two things that are very unique to him. So he has an antiverted hip um, and he has a a torque, a, a twist in his femur, and this is actually one of the ways that he is actually capable of accessing these extreme ranges of motion. So if you are one of those people that that actually have these same capabilities, you might be able to do what he does and you might actually find it beneficial under some circumstance. But for the people that don't have have these little idiosyncratic elements in their anatomy, they will merely be frustrated in their inability to actually access these these movements or positions. So again, we have to consider how this works. It's always going to be an n equals one scenario. that's why we work off of principles, and we apply these <coughs> excuse me principles to the individual, and we we work through progression. To determine what would be best for this person in these circumstances. So again, we can't apply, you know, one person's capabilities, broad stroke. So what you actually need to find out through experimentation, uh, very careful experimentation, always safe to fail experiments under the guidance of someone with a broad scope of knowledge, understanding, and experience would be the best way to do it. You have to find out what is normal for you and what is best for you under the circumstances within a specific context. So Rachel, I hope that answers your question in regards to that. Now, when we look at the extreme end ranges that, that these people are demonstrating, it would be rare that we that we would ever be exposed to these ranges of motion except under these exercise circumstances. So. Um, when we talk about like the extreme ankle range of motion, you're actually beyond what would be typical end range propulsive strategies. So some people may find that useful. Some people may not. Um, again, their ability to access these extreme ankle ranges of motion. Um, if you look at some populations that that uh, were squatting as part of their culture, um, they actually have changes in the ankle bones themselves. So the end of the tibia has an extra facet on it that makes it easier to deep squat at an extreme uh, angle of dorsiflexion. The talus is also shaped differently, which allows some some of these extremes. But again, we're not really accessing these during normal activities, during normal performance. So again, the, the question then becomes, is this beneficial on any level at all? Um, so always a question mark. But the thing that, that you want to do with these, these types of things, especially when we look at the extremes, is we want to try to filter this information as much as possible through as many lenses as we can to allow us to determine it's like, okay, what can we take away from this that may apply to a much broader audience or, or, or broader population. Rachel, hope you have a great day. I appreciate your question. Everybody have a great Tuesday, and I'll talk to you later. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and Mm-mm-mm. it is perfect. Okay, so Wednesday, that means tomorrow's Chips and Salsa Day. Also, 6 a.m., Coffee and Coaches Conference call. So if uh, you haven't participated in one of those yet, please do, we always have a good group of people to get on there, have a little coffee, relax, blow off some steam, get some questions answered, so it's kind of fun. Um, So I do recommend that. Um, Mike Robertson is on today for IFASTU uh, for the Q&A call there. So if you're a member Mm -hmm. of IFASTU, um, be ready for that. That should be really fun and interesting as well. Okay, and I have a pretty cool question um, for for today. A um, little off the beaten path, not really gonna be like one of those typical, oh, do this and then this kind of a kind of a questions. Um, so it's a little bit more of, of, a, of a reasoning type of question, but it's still very, very useful and very, very interesting. And this comes from Marcel. Marcel says, I've been implementing your model with some good success, but there seems to be a variation in how much of the changes we get to stick. Um, some clients Uh, Things change very, very nicely and stay that way and others seem like an ongoing battle to maintain good movement variability. Can you talk about what factors influence things not sticking and how to go about working out what the client needs if it is hard to maintain changes? Well, Marcel, welcome to my world. Okay, so this is not weird. It's not unusual. Um, there are always people that that change very readily, and and you may never see them again after that first visit because they do so well. And then there's the people that that are much more challenging, and that's just you know the the broad scope variation of how how humans um, have so many potential influences. So let's look at this from from a uh, a broad perspective for a second. So there are always things that we can know and there's things that we don't know. When we talk about things being multifactorial, we we don't even know how many things potentially influence. But let's look at the human as 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 a broad system that's made up of subsystems. And let's say that you have 12 subsystems in your body. And one of those lacks sufficient adaptability and then promotes uh, a, a deficit in movement which can ultimately result in pain and they come to see guys like you and me. And let's say that we do an intervention and that intervention addresses that subsystem that is the limiting factor and then they have a great outcome and everything goes really, really well. They learn how to maintain their adaptability and they feel great. But now let's say that there's multiple subsystems that could be involved. So let's say that we've got two or three out of these 12, and let's say that our intervention covers eight of those, but unfortunately the two or three that are, that are low in adaptability are not affected at all. Now we don't make the change. And so those are the things that we have to understand is that this is why we never really know why people get better or why they don't get better. Uh, because there's so many potential influences. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to influence as many of those subsystems as possible with treatment and training to produce the desired outcome. Um, so there's always that factor in play. The adaptations that we often utilize in on the rehab end of things, um, before we get to sort of like the fitness and the conditioning and reconditioning elements, they tend to be learning-based adaptations. So some people learn faster than others. Some people have more more uh, perceptual capabilities. Some people learn um, have a broader experience to draw on. So they do adapt faster. Some people are better trained. Um, so again, we have these genetic influences. We have these cognitive influences. We have psychological influences that all all um, um, determine. Um, what type of progress we're going to make with people. And so again, we have to take all of those things into consideration. Um, when it comes to things like training, um, personal behaviors, uh, habits, etc. So now we have potential interference problems. So if I am training um, to produce high force, high strength, hypertrophy, etc. And I have these really strong concentric orientation Um, elements that that influence the way that I move or can't move, then we have actually an interference with training. So sometimes you got to take certain things away from people for a while so they can become more adaptable. Some people um, have um, unknown stressors or they don't perceive them as stressor so maybe it's a job maybe it 's a lack of sleep, maybe it 's a relationship. all of those things can potentially influence our outcomes because it does influence the system at some level and then that produces what you and I would measure on, on the on the table so thankfully we've got a really good proxy measure for for the fact that there is some sort of influence that is that is affecting Um, our patient or or our client. We also have to consider structural adaptations um, and sensory adaptations that, that, that become influential. So if I have somebody that has a true structural change, um, many times um, we can overcome those if, if they're small and they don't influence our ability to shift volumes and pressures. But if we have something like, say, a shoulder labrum or a hip labrum injury that's extensive enough, we no longer have that intact mechanism of a synovial joint. And then we got to send it back to the doc and say, look, well, we gave this a shot. It didn't go well. Here's what I think. Um, and then we, we get help from that perspective as well we talk about the, the sensory influences, all of your sensory systems have adaptability built into them. And so if, if I have a, a lens and an eye that can't change shape enough, then I have, I have potential visual problems. If I have perceptual problems um, that are associated with vision, that needs to be addressed as well. So now we look at our behavioral optometrist for, for some help there. If we have a sensory issue... In our mouths or a physical deficit so we have people with a with a really small narrow palate a a a narrow airway all of those things influence our ability to to breathe and move and be comfortable and and again managing um the the way that we perceive that um, from a stress-related standpoint all become these these influences so there's a lot of stuff here um, that we we have to, to take into consideration. It makes it very, very difficult because, again, a lot of these things are just unknowns and we're doing this by processes of elimination. It's like, okay, so it appears this, it appears this, it appears this, and we start to take things things away or we say, look, at some point in time, we have to recognize that that it is not within our scope to help this person. We may be able to identify that there is a problem but it is beyond our scope, and so then we need to refer them to someone else that, that may be able to help. That might be their primary care physician to, to become the case manager to start to manage this thing, or if we can identify a specific deficit because of our training, then we can refer them to the appropriate professional. So so there's a lot of things that are potential influences. Um, the, the, the first goal, I would say, is you got to try to eliminate any interferences that are obvious Um, You know, again, this could be a training-related thing or or just a a personal behavior thing that we think is an influence and we can usually manage those rather readily. Uh, But there are always going to be those those unknowns. So that's what makes this a little bit more difficult than than we would like sometimes. It would be great if everybody came in and made those changes on the first day, but sometimes it is a struggle. There are many influences, my friend. Hang in there. Um, hopefully this was helpful, just to stimulate some thought process for you. Have a great Wednesday. Chips and salsa tomorrow. Uh, coaches, uh, coffee and coaches call in the morning at six a.m. And I will see you guys later. It is Thursday. Coffee and coaches conference call. I have neuro in hand and mm, Dr. Mike. It is perfect. I am killing it on the neurocopy, I'm telling you.
1: I believe it. There's nothing. I think, I, I think the internet is killing it on your impersonations of you. <laughs> killing it with neurocopy. Have you seen some of those? I love it.
0: <laughs> well, uh, I, I, will, I will stop socializing. And, and, well, actually, we can continue to socialize as much as we want, because we can do anything we want on this call. So if you got any questions, comments, gripes, complaints, fire away. Anything that you want to talk about? Nikki.
1: I, I do have a question.
0: I saw it. I I saw you. You were you were checking your notes.
1: I was Star
0: so. Start us off. Been,
1: I've been listening to your podcast with you and. So you and three other people. That's awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Actually, it's very helpful. Very insightful. It's so I'm doing a lot more traveling, and I picked up on your podcast. And I was listening to I think it was episode I think it was ten when you were talking about client relationships, and you mentioned something about making the, like not personifying the pain in somebody when you're dealing with them. Can you expand on that a little bit more and like how you avoid that? Well, so,
0: so here's, here's the number one mistake that, that a lot of therapists make is they make, they make the situation and the interaction about pain. I can do absolutely nothing about it. Literally, I can do nothing about it. Now, my intent would be to help them alleviate it, right? but it's not my decision. And in fact, it's not their decision. Okay, so I don't talk about it too much. And, and uh, Campo is on the call and he was, he was a Padawan at one point in time. And so he knows, he knows what I say to people when they, when they walk in the door. And, and I, always say, I always say things like, what's your status? Right. And so I don't, i never say, how is your pain or how is the pain? Because the minute you give them that, that becomes the point of importance. And if I can't impact that, I just made it the most important thing. And, and now I'm, I, I'm, I'm already behind the eight ball. Right. I, I put myself in a bad position because now if we don't alleviate it, I'm the bad guy or, or I'm the guy that can't help them. Right. So my goal when they when they come in is is focus on the things that I know that they have control over. So it's like, hey, how did you do with your homework? So I give them exercises to do at home. We call it homework, and I, and I say, how'd you do with your homework? So now the focus is on execution, right? So these are the things that you can do. These are the things that you can control, and so that becomes that becomes all of the focus, because like I said. It, like right now, Nikki, I don't know if you recognize this fact, you do not control your health. People like to think that they do, because we do things that that we do that make us feel good or we think that contribute to our health. And there are many things that we we, we do know that do contribute to our health, okay? But ultimately, we never do, right? Because there's so many factors involved in what we would consider health, right? So again my my goal with with all of that with that concept is to is to take that off the table as as a useful measure of the interaction. Of course I want them to feel good. Of course I don't want them to be in pain. But if I if I make that any measure of focus, you have immediately failed because now that is that is the one thing that they will be focused on as you know, and then they start to blame themselves, or they'll blame me, or if it's a situation with you, they'll blame you, right? And we don't want we don't want to put ourselves in that situation because you you it, it's so difficult to be successful under those circumstances because if they don't walk out without pain, then you fail. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that makes sense. How does your tactic change when there is somebody who has already identified themselves with pain through multiple? Like, they had gone through the doctors, the physical therapists, and they come to you, and they're already there. Does your tech change? I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't,
0: I'm not the first guy ever. I'm the, I'm the last guy, hopefully. You know, mm. I'm like five or six down the line. Uh, does it change? Um, no. Um, it, it, it's harder sometimes, because it, it you have to pull their focus away from it, because everybody else has done that to them. Right. right. Um, the doctors unfortunately um, spend a lot of time talking about it and then they do they they ask questions like how is your pain they just gave them ownership of it right so now it's my responsibility to to alleviate my pain and i don't know what to do or i can't do it it's like ah right so again you you you've created this situation that is is almost unwinnable if you take that off the table, so it's, nobody ever walks, they, they never walk in the door and they go, hey, how's your happiness? You know, nobody ever asks you that, right? But it's the same thing, happiness is an output, it's a decision that is made based on the environment and the context, et cetera. Pain is the same thing. The only reason that pain, I, I, I love saying this, it's like the only reason that pain gets all the attention is just because it's unpleasant, right? right like that, you know it's kind of like that that uh, relative that you have to see like once a year that you have to spend time with it's just unpleasant right mm-hmm. but I mean but that's why it gets attention it's like because again where they they, they talk about pain science which is kind of silly you know if you ever heard neval ravikant talk he says if you have to add the word science to something it's probably not as real science um but but nobody talks about the happiness science like they talk about pain science because again pain is this 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 uncomfortable undesirable feeling we don't we don't have the same approach to, to good things, right? Um, so again I just try to get people away from it as quickly as possible and get them to focus on on those things. It's, the same thing happens in weight loss, Nikki. Um, you get people focused on their weight, right? And while we do obviously need markers. But, but if it becomes the weight and not the behaviors, then you start to fail. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, there's a lead measure and a lag measure, right? And so, weight is a lag measure. The, the weight is the outcome. Um, of the behaviors that came before that. And so the thing that we, we need to focus on in that situation is, okay, did you, did you prepare your meals as you, as you were supposed to? Check that one off the list. Okay, did you eat them when you were supposed to? Did you get your workouts in like you were supposed to? Did you get your sleep? Are you drinking your, your, your water and your green tea, et cetera, et cetera? It's like, so we always focus on behaviors with those people. We don't really talk too much about, about the, the numbers because the numbers take care of themselves. If you execute all the behaviors, then Everything takes care of itself. So pain's no different for me than than the weight loss concept. Is like I'm just not gonna talk about that. I'm gonna talk about the stuff that matters that you do have control over. Right. So that's how I look at that. If that if that is my expansion on that.
1: No, that does help. Okay. I made that mistake this year. So now I know how to we all do. I mean, and I'm not
0: perfect. I screw up sometimes too, you know. But but the thing about it is it's like it's like the the, the regardless of the situation no matter what we're talking about the focus needs to be on the things that you do have a measure of control over and it should be it, it, we never really have to talk about the other stuff that it's, it, it's a byproduct it's like a goal it's like okay um a goal is an end it you know if you want to lose weight quickly cut off a limb okay and then people go well i'd be crazy well, yeah it is crazy but it does work right so so that that's not the goal the goal is the behaviors Right, the, the intent should be to focus on the behaviors. So that's, that's what I try to do in the clinic. I like that. Okay. And if you get them to, to do something that they're already habitual, right, Dr. Mike?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then you just replace it with something good.
1: The secret sauce. There you go. I never thought of that with pain before. About, I mean, so basically like we were talking with weight loss I talk about it as action goals versus outcome goals. Right. So every you know um, but I never thought about it from a pain perspective which is really clever.
0: Well, but but I so for me it's like they're all the same. It's like it's like pain is just an output. It's a choice that yeah. the system makes. Right? Based on mm-hmm. all of the experiences, all of the context, all of the the internal information that, that that has to be processed and then it makes a decision and that is the output. And again, I Literally think about think about all the potential influences that are inside of you every every moment of every day It's like you're not controlling that
1: you might think yeah. you, well, do, you know well I mean I think it is it's just like weight loss I think the the conversation that I will always have with clients is when they'll say like how much weight can I lose like I have no idea you know like I know here's here's x y z principles that we know work. let's see how your body responds to it because you don't really know the backlog of I don't know, metabolic distress or overcaloric, you know, like you don't know all the other things that are in the background that you're dealing with. Well, there's so many unknowns in every situation,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. And we'll, all we have to do is respect that. It's like, it's like, it doesn't mean that we're not gonna make progress. It doesn't mean that we can't be successful. It just means that, that there's, there's stuff that we're just not gonna know, but that's why it's a process and that's why we follow things over time. And, and, and people ask me, it's like, how long do you think it's gonna take me to get rid of this? It's like, I have no idea. I said, if you broke a bone, it would be six to eight weeks. We kind of know that one through experience over time, that most people will heal a bone in six to eight weeks. But my, I'm making a point, it's like, okay. So if, if this is a learning-based adaptation that, that I have to teach you, right, how fast is it going to take you to learn how to do this and make it, make it unconscious? It's like, mm-hmm. I don't know how long that takes. What is, what is the effort that you're willing to put forth? How many things are you doing that interfere with what we're trying to accomplish, right? So it's the runner that comes in with plantar fasciitis and, and then they say they say, okay, how long is this going to take? And it's like, how long, how long are you willing to stop running? And they go, well, okay, I usually do 120 miles a week or whatever. I don't know how a marathon runner runs these days, but they go, what if I only do six? <laughs> it's like they don't they don't quite get it. They're, they keep doing things that interfere with their behaviors. And so those are the things that that have to slowly be taken away because again, they're habitual just like everybody else is, or they don't mm-hmm. want to give things up. So you got, you got some positional stuff and then you've got some, some muscle activity stuff that limits the, Correct. the, um, the great toe. So, so you're going to have to look at, um, so, okay. So here you go. When you have, when you have an actively, um, uh, plantar flexed first ray, Okay. When it's actively plantar flexed, you have, a pelvis problem in the in the, the posterior aspect of the hip that is exactly the same as what's going on in the foot. Is, is it a right side or left
1: side? Bilateral.
0: Oh, okay. So then you've got to, you must have a really big orientation to to have a, a straight leg raise on that side. Then
1: I'll take a video if you don't mind and send it to you.
0: Or it's not an active it's not an actively plantar flex first rep. So, so again, is it is it like a really crazy straight leg raise? Is it an extreme at the other end?
1: He can get past ninety.
0: Okay, so that would that would be kind of extreme. So that's 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 an orientation. So then it's probably it's it's probably the passive position of the foot um, that that's the result. Then you you got somebody that that is um, is probably uh, um, later in in the the propulsive phase.
1: Okay. Makes sense.
0: Yeah. Well, again, it's it's like if it's actively pressed down, you're going to have concentric orientation up above on the back side of the hip. If it's passive, it's because the the the, the pelvis is already passed over the foot, right? And so then you're going to have like a. It's going to look more like a mutated uh, sacrum. You're going to have like the so the posterior lower aspect of the of the sacrum will be um, tipped tipped forward. You'll have um, you're like, uh, shoulder flexion should be minimally limited, probably hip flexion yeah. minimally limited, and then you have the crazy straight leg. So that has to be let me grab the pelvis for a second. You have to have a pelvis that does that to have the straight leg raise and the hip flexion, right? And so this would be representative of the ankle as well. So the ankle would be in this orientation. So, so now you have a, an eccentric orientation posteriorly. Um, at the ankle, okay, which would give you again you you have a tibia that is that is forward over the foot, which will passively put the first ray into the ground
1: so it's kind of keeping them from falling forward
0: correct, correct, but again it's, yeah so center of gravity is is over the foot far enough that it's pressing the the foot into the ground yeah. Right. So it's not, it's not the, it's not like the, uh, you know, the the really rigid supinated foot that looks like they just put their heel down on the ground. It's going to be somebody that's over top of it. And again, so that, so you've got the orientation, you've probably got some mutation to the sacrum and, and that's where I would go first anyway, to bring okay. them back. Cause if you can get them, if you can get their center of gravity backwards, um, then, then you've just alleviated all that, all that, um, the, the, Con- anterior concentric orientation. So you've got like a tibiasi anterior that's pulling the knee forward over the foot, right? And then your posterior compartment's gonna be be eccentrically oriented, right? So you gotta reverse that. And the only way you're gonna do that is to get them back on their heel, but you're gonna have to do it from above because if the, if the pelvis is oriented forward and the sacrum is mutated, you can't pull them back. Hey, uh, everybody, thanks for coming. This is a great call. This is fun. We we were rolling the whole time. That's that was great. Um, we'll do this again next week. So thanks again for coming. Enjoy your coffee. Have a great Thursday. Happy Thursday, Nikki. Um, I'm gonna go have some chips and salsa tonight, as usual. And uh, um we'll see you guys later. Good morning, happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and It is perfect as usual. Busy Friday. Had some calls this morning. Almost lost my voice at one point. That was kind of scary. Um, but let's go ahead and dig right into the Q&A so we can get this thing rolling. This comes from Austin. Austin is the current IFAS physical therapy fellow. So he's an actual physical therapist came in. He wants to do a lot of the model in his practice and so he is he is learning that and he came up with a with a pretty good question. Uh, we've kind of touched on it a little bit in the past, but I think it's worthy of of going through it again, because again, some of this stuff can get really confusing at times when we're dealing with all this complexity. This has to do with the loss of hip internal rotation and and why this would occur. So Austin says, if somebody has limited hip, excuse me, if someone has limited hip internal rotation, what would indicate the anterior, or that would indicate anterior compression. However, I have mentioned in the past the loss of IR. Can we do the compression below the level of the trochanter posteriorly? How do you determine whether the compression is from the anterior or posterior aspect of the hip limiting hip IR? So the first thing we want to do is we want to uh, establish a framework of of how this internal and external rotation would would occur. So we're going to look at the the two uh, positions of the pelvis from an inhale and exhale standpoint. So as we inhale, we ER. As we exhale, we IR. And so as we move through hip range of motion, we need this relative motion in the pelvis to actually access full, full ranges of motion. So from this early phase of, of hip flexion as an example, we would be in this ER state, which would provide the external rotation through the hip. As we move through this middle range, we need to capture internal rotation. So we need to ca- capture that exhale position of the pelvis. And then an end range flexion again to, to hit that sort of compressed hip flexion we need to be able to recapture this externally rotated and and inhaled position of the pelvis. So that's our standard that we're going to be working from. Now typically we're going to be measuring internal and external rotation at this 90 degrees of of hip flexion. So we have to be able to achieve that position alone just to get a normal measure. And so this is where, where some of this posterior stuff is going to come into play. So typically what we're going to see when we lose the internal rotation we're going to see this anterior aspect of the pelvis getting compressed and so what that does is it actually changes the shape of of an orientation of of the pubis and ischium such that that we lose that that internal rotation so let me give you an example so if we have somebody that's biased towards an inhalation strategy so somebody's biased towards er um, what you're going to do is you're going to pick up more external rotation you're going to lose internal rotation but if I have this full excursion of, of the 100 degrees of normal hip rotation, that means we still have some relative motion in, in the pelvis, um, but we do have this shape change in, in the ischium that creates the, the ER bias, and that's why we see the, the reduction of hip internal rotation under those circumstances. However, However, if we start to superimpose, a superficial compressive strategy in this area of the musculature below the level of the trochanus. So this is more superficial. So the first loss of range of motion that we talked about was this deeper stuff, which is the, the typical, they're referred to as external rotators of, of the hips. So we're talking about the, the Gemelli brothers um, and obturator uh, internus limiting that, that initial hip external rotation if we're biased towards inhalation. If we superimpose this, the, the superficial compressive strategy on top of this, now we have a situation where we're going to lose early external rotation. So this early phase of external rotation will now um, be limited by this, this superficial compressive strategy, which means that I can't even get my hip into this, this position where I would typically measure this, this uh, hip internal rotation. So the way that you're going to distinguish this posterior compressor strategy from the typical anterior compressor strategy is the fact that you're going to lose the ability to actually flex the hip even to, to this 90 degree angle. And so this is where you're going to see the crazy limited straight leg races. So you'll see like you know, 35 to 45 degrees of a straight leg raise where you're gonna see hip flexion that looks like as you move it towards hip flexion, the pelvis is gonna to try to roll away from you because again, I don't have the internal rotation available to me. I don't have the relative motion in the pelvis anymore that would allow me to go from this ER to IR to ER strategy. It is now locked into one piece. And so now as I try to flex the hip, the only relative motion I have is between the femur and the pelvis as a unit, so it starts to turn away, or or you'll see it start to deviate outward to a degree before you get to the 90-degree angle of the hip. So that's the differentiator between the superficial strategy and then what we would consider this this deeper shape change that's associated with with the, the ischium position again, under normal circumstances where I still have relative motions available to me. So Austin, I hope that answers your question. If it doesn't, obviously I'm going to see you really, really soon and we can talk about it. But if if it doesn't answer your question, for those of you that are watching on video, then please send a question to askbillhartman at gmail.com and we will clarify for you. Have a great Friday. Have a terrific weekend. Um, The podcast will be up on Sunday, so hopefully you guys are listening to that as well, and I will see you on Monday.